Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Brick and Data podcast, a podcast dedicated to retail news, analytics, and tech. In this episode, Jose was able to catch up with Soon Yu. Soon has spent almost 20 years in the areas of innovation, design, and marketing for retailers. And he spent it both as an entrepreneur and as a business leader at major retailers. His most recent role was Global VP of Innovation at VF Corporation, which is the, as you may or may not know, is the parent company to lots of brands, about 30 brands, including North Face, Timberland, Vans, Wrangler, amongst others. And he was responsible for generating and catalyzing new ideas and building capabilities and platforms to facilitate and accelerate growth. And this is important because the retail industry is going through a bit of a change right now and has for a few years now. And some retailers are leveraging their their brand and ability to innovate to get them through it. And some, frankly, aren't. In Soon's new book titled Iconic Advantage, Don't Chase the New, Innovate the Old, he gets into some of these challenges about how retailers, companies in general, can leverage what they already have to create differentiation and deeper relationships with their customers. And this can help them create staying power, scaling power, and just be noticed in general, especially in this cluttered environment we have right now in retail. So let's listen in while Jose gets some time with Soon. Looking at your book, is what, what, what led you uh, to write uh, your book, Iconic Advantage? Oh, that's a great question. And uh, first of all, I wanted to say thanks for having me on, Jose. And I'm really excited that you and I are talking about the book. And 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 I'm hoping that the listening audience will find something valuable from it. You know, one of the reasons, probably the main reason I wrote the book is I've spent the last 20 plus years um, in the field of sort of innovation, marketing, and brand. And um, I, I think during the bio introduction, uh, I think it was mentioned that I had an opportunity to create a $2 billion pipeline of value uh, for a lot of the companies I've worked for. And I don't, no, you know, when, when you hear that number, it sounds really impressive, but yes, yes, what, it does. What, <laughs> what's, what's sort of hidden underneath all that is all the uh, heartache, all the trials and tribulation, all the um, failures and um, embarrassment that went to actually get to $2 billion worth of value creation. And what I was hoping to do through the book was kind of share some of the things that I learned over the last 20 plus years uh, about why it was really easy for some people to be successful with innovation and why me being in this camp, why it was hard for some of us to get to value creation quickly. And so uh, really the, the catalyst or the genesis for writing the book was wanting to share some hard lessons learned about failure and how might people shortcut all that, uh, not the learning that you get from failure, but just sort of the pain so that they might uh, see more commercial success faster uh, than what I did. Sure. And, and, and just so you know, I, I am an expert at failure. Um, I, I, I don't know if you <laughs> ever talked about this, but you know, I, I always share this scorecard I have on failure. It's a personal scorecard. And so I have a bunch of numbers and they kind of go like this, uh, four, five, six, 30 plus and 300. So four just represents the number of career restarts that I've had in my life. And actually, I probably have to up that to five because this is a brand new one trying to become a, an author and a speaker and all that. But when I say <laughs> career restarts, 
I'm not talking about the idea that a recruiter calls you up and says, hey, I have this really great job and you know, it's in a little bit different industry. You, you, you open to this or it's in a slightly different function. You, you, you're cool with this? No, my career restarts were basically framed as you're fired. We don't need you. And six to 12 months of unemployment, uh, either begging for a job or begging for funding. So that's what I mean by career restarts. <laughs> but that's but, but that's soon that that's incredible, right? Because often people uh, don't talk about failure, and I think that anyone that's successful, like you are, has to go to failure in order to gain that success. It, it's not just everybody always says, "Oh, this is the success models we should be studying," but really, I, I would think that that's not really the the right way to think about things. No, and I, I think you're absolutely right. It's sort of this idea of uh, treating yourself as a prototype. And as any prototype, it's about continuous improvement, continuous learning. And part of the process is uh, I think you prototype to win, but you test to fail. So in other words, um, part of the testing that prototypes go through is what's not working and, and being open and and, and, and and honest about what's not working and be willing to sort of reflect on it and make changes. And I do think that process of treating yourself like a prototype, it actually, it embodies the idea of fail and repeat. So, and reprototype. So yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I'm going to just finish the, the scorecard really quickly, just from the re- career restarts. It kind of was a result of um, the number five is the number of businesses that were dissolved that I actually began Number six is even worse. It's because of these career restarts and businesses dissolved. I've actually had to conduct six rounds of layoffs, and that actually means sitting wow. across from friends, people, people like you and me, you know, like like, and and sure. saying to you, hey, you and I, I know we began this vision and it's been exciting and fun, but guess what? We don't have funding to last over the next month, and I, I'm sorry, we're just, you know, we're gonna have to. Um, you know, I'm not sure how you're going to pay for your kids' education. It's a hard conversation sure. to have those layoffs. And then, you know, obviously, as a result of all that, I've had over 30 product failure launches. But I think that one of the most interesting numbers that I think your audience will find, it, uh, uh, I think, uh, both humorous but, uh, but also uh, insightful is this idea of 300. 300 is actually, it seems like a high number, but it's actually a very low number. Can you guess what that number represents? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I'm trying to put some context around it. And uh, rather than guessing, I'll just be very frank with you and say, no, I do not uh, know what that number is. <laughs> Every once in a while when I'm talking, somebody in the audience will guess it, but most people don't. It's It was my credit score. And just so oh, you know, wow. 300 is the basement. You, you, you basically get 300 for putting your name on any credit score, but you can't go below 300. It's kind of like taking the SAT. I don't think you can go below 600. So... Uh, I, I've hit 300 twice in my life. And just so you know, you know, that means that I've had to take on a lot of risk and sometimes those things didn't pay out. So uh, from a personal failure point of view, I, I think I have a pretty good scorecard. No, it sounds like it. I mean, especially if at the end you're, you're able to build a, a large pipeline, as we discussed earlier, that that's pretty incredible. Which yeah. would then bring me to, to, to the next question, going back a little bit to um, the iconic advantage. Um, so wh- why did you specifically write a book about iconicity? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. You know, why specifically that topic? Well, when I spent 20 years kind of looking at what made certain businesses more successful in innovation and others not as successful, 
You know, one of the uh, learnings that came out was those businesses, um, one, that already had sort of iconic brands and iconic franchises, mm -hmm. had a much, much easier road when it came to innovating because obviously they already had built-in credibility with their customer base. Sure. They also did something very smartly. They actually focused a majority of their innovation, energy, and efforts against those existing iconic brands and franchises versus chasing a lot of sort of new ideas or new brands. And it's really this idea that uh, those businesses that were successful in innovation actually innovated the old. They didn't innovate the new. Mm. Now, it makes a lot of sense if you, if you step back and look at it because when you're innovating what you're already good at, what consumers already love about you and, and trust you for, it's much easier to uh, get their attention. It's much easier to get to them to buy into your new value proposition. Um, and, and you already have a built-in base of um, you know, loyal customers. And it's, it's much easier to retain a customer than it is to find a new one. Sure. And, and, and then on top of it, from a cost structure point of view, you, know, you already have um, fixed costs in terms of production lines, and 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 so you're growing more volume uh, volume over the same production line. I mean that that's going to lower your costs. So in many ways, the idea of focusing not not chasing the new, but really innovating the old sure. has actually allowed these companies to be even more successful. Um, take advantage of their economies of scale, sure. of knowledge and experience, and uh, sort of customer relationships and goodwill. And that's and, that, that's fascinating. J just to, to interject for a second, in, in the sense that I mean, re what you're saying is, look, uh, for companies, um, it's important to highlight and let's say further expand the strengths rather than innovating uh, in ways that are a little bit. Um, off the core, if you will. I, I, you know, and yeah, and you know, when you're saying that, and that's a great summary of, of sort of the takeaway here. It applies to us, right? Us, us as as career, you know, as um, uh, professionals. Um, we oftentimes, I don't know why, we we have a disproportionate amount of focus in our performance reviews about our opportunity areas, our gaps, or, or you know, where where we are matching up versus our peers. Instead of talking more and more about what are you really good at and how do we actually you know, put you in the right seat in the bus and make sure you have the right platform so everyone gets to see how great you are at this talent and, and how do we make this talent even supercharged for you. And, and, and think about if you spent the same number of hours on trying to – instead of trying to fix what was wrong but really um, leverage and scale what you're great at – um, think how much more success you'd have on a professional level. And the same thing is true for businesses. And sure. so, and, and you know, this seems like a very uh, simple truth. It seems like kind of obvious. But when I did an audit of a lot of the brands that were part of the, the, the portfolio of businesses that I've worked with or worked for, uh, I, I was surprised when I asked people, well, you know, um, one, do you know what percent of, of your revenue and uh, profits are coming from your iconic franchises? No. Um, two, mm. do you have a dedicated team that's just focused on your heritage brands and the, and the brands that are making the most money? Not always. Um, you have a specific business plan that outlines what you're going to do to grow and invest 
this heritage brand or this iconic brand over the next three to five years? Sure. Uh, no. You know, so I kept asking all these questions. And, and, and so and it was surprising how much time and energy, especially in the innovation team's focus, is on the new spaces, the, the new where to plays, the new sure. uh, front end of innovation or the blue ocean type stuff versus really uh, focusing in and innovating where they were already successful. Sure. And that makes a lot of sense. And you're right. It, it, it's a very, it, it sounds, as, as you said, it, it sounds quite uh, obvious, but it really isn't, right? Because it's evolutionary, if you will. Uh, another, I guess, another way to think about it. It, it, it's not really, it doesn't always have to be revolutionary. I'm sure there, there are cases where we have revolutionary innovation, but what you're talking about is really an evolution of the core uh, of a business. So, so with that in mind, um, can you talk a little bit about, um, more specifically what, what, um, makes iconic products more powerful maybe talk about a particular, uh, product or type of product? Sure. Um, so, the, 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 yeah, uh, the, the reason I wrote the book is, one, I was learning that uh, these, these businesses were successful by innovating where they were already great at, especially on their iconic uh, brands and franchises. And, but part of, part of um, wanting to sort of um, understand the secret sauce of how that happens, uh, one of the first questions is really trying to understand what makes products iconic. And knowing that then, what can you do to either uh, supercharge the new products that you're working on or, or your existing products. Um, and so that was a fundamental question that we were trying to answer. And as we did the research and, and, and looked at it, uh, there are three qualities that iconic franchises and, and brands shared. And, and these are the three qualities. The first is distinction. There was something different or unique that made that product or brand stand out, something that they would be known for. The second quality was really relevance and meaning, and it was the idea that whatever they were distinct and different um, uh, or known for being different, it was really relevant and meaningful to the audience. And sure. then lastly, it was universal recognition for the distinction that was highly relevant. So that's it. It was an idea of distinction, relevance, and universal recognition for that distinctive relevance. And so when you look at a product like uh, Nike Air, mm -hmm. um, if I asked you, what's one feature on the Nike Air shoe that's distinctive, what would you say? Uh, Nike Air would be the, the shape. Yep, the shape. And that little air pocket on the sole, right? Yes, the, exactly. the, Yes, yeah. And so that air pocket became sort of the distinctive feature. But it wasn't just visually different for visual difference sake only. It also was highly relevant to their key point of difference, which was performance and specifically uh, in the shoes that they were developing. At first, it was the, the trainers. It was the idea of buoyancy. Mm. And so what was great about their distinctive element is that it immediately communicated um, the benefit to the user. And so that made it highly relevant. And obviously, Nike's done an amazing job of scaling it to become universally known and seen and recognized a symbol of performance and of buoyancy. And, and one of the, the truths of the, about the product is that the air pocket will never lose its bounce, whereas most soles lose about 40% of their 
so-called bounce um, in the life in their lifetime. Wow, that that makes a lot of sense, right? Because if, as I think about it, and I'm a big Nike fan, and I I don't know um, all of these, even though I'm a fan, don't know of uh, of these let's say special features of the shoe other than uh, how long does it last but you're right nike air um particularly has a longer life if you will uh, relative to other models that they carry within their their line that's right that's right so those are the three things that uh, make iconic products iconic and if you understand that which is what we really you know we're trying to do with the book you can then look at what are the best practices to create distinction and to create relevance of that distinction and then to universally scale that distinction. Wow. So in terms of – so I, I guess it not only is this applicable, I guess, to – it's so what you're saying is if we were to use the three qualities of distinction, relevance, and universal recognition – all tied together for a particular product, it's applicable pretty much in any context, right? Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a sneaker or performance sneaker manufacturer. It could be a retailer that does apparel uh, as well. Is, is that correct? Absolutely. And, you know, when we, when we talk about these three qualities, we talk about um, the best practices of um, building these three qualities. And so we talk about the idea of building noticing power, building staying power, and then building scaling power. Noticing power to build distinction, uh, staying power to build relevance, and scaling power to create universal recognition. And under the noticing power uh, part of it, one of the things we ask people is, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's the same thing when you go to the banks uh, and, and uh there's sort of one thing that the banks always know you for, and that's your signature. And so I always ask people, what's your signature? You know, um, this, this is a great product, but how does it stand out versus everybody else? Is there's a signature element that people would know you for versus looking like run in the mill or looking like everybody else? Mm. And, and so I think the question for your audience and for other and, and folks in business is if they are running a business, what makes them distinctive? Is there one or two signature elements that they can point to that gives them some distinction? And, and the great thing about signature elements, they come in many forms. You know, when we're talking about the, the Nike example, that's a signature feature, okay? So that's a product feature that makes it really um, noticeable. But you could have a signature style. Think about Burberry and their little checkered pattern. That style is very uh, recognize universally, and and it, it, it sort of connotes this uh, this sort of image of what I call English luxury, right? Sure. It's sort of um, you know, and, and so that you can have style as one of your signature elements. Silhouette is another way to do it. Think about the soy sauce bottle by Kiko Man, right? That has sure. a very distinct sort of hourglass shape. And now it's become iconic. And when you see that shape, you don't even need to read the label or anything. You know it's Kiko Man. Wow. As I'm thinking about sorry. this, oh, sorry about that. As I was thinking about this, sorry, you just made me think of so the iconic products that come to mind would be a Chanel jacket, right? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. just that silhouette. Um, and it's just that the way it looks. Um, you, you know it's Chanel, and even if the brand isn't Chanel, it should be. You know it's Chanel inspired, but your your mind is always saying Chanel. If you look at a certain shape of 
a bag like uh, Hermes, you'd think of um, Birkin bag. It, it's a very particular shape that doesn't matter what leather it's in. It's highly recognizable. That's absolutely right. I mean, you think about was it the uh, the the great shoes that have the red bottoms? Is it the Christian Louboutins? Right? Yes, so exactly. Those, you know, I mean, that's very iconic signature feature that they have. Hmm. The, by the way, I, I, just so you know, there are other ways beyond just the feature, the style, the silhouette. Those are very physical, but you can have a signature experience. Sure. Um, I, I'll give you a simple one. We all know Apple for a lot of different reasons, um, but they actually have signature experiences. You know, obviously the store experience is one thing, but you've bought an Apple product before, right? Yes. Uh, I'm, I think I have Apple everything. <laughs> okay. Well, think about yeah. Think about when you buy an Apple product and you bring it home, and you unveil it by by opening it up and and how the box looks like. Like I remember the first time I opened my iPod and you open it up and there's layers and it's almost like unveiling a treasure. Sure. Well, Apple realized that the idea of um, um, opening a box is unveiling a treasure, so they created a signature experience. So you can also create signature experiences. There's even ability to create a signature signature sensory. So think about the idea of a Harley Davidson. It's highly likely that you will have heard a Harley Davidson way before you ever see it because of the loud and very iconic noise that it makes. So this idea of um, you know iconic sensory is is is, is also really critical. And and lastly. Um, Iconic points of view. Um, when you think about Richard Branson and, and Virgin, you know, it, it, it permeates everything they do, this point of view. And it's a very, very signature element of the brand is their point of view. Or Red Bull, you know, the, sure. you know, giving you wings. Well, everything they're doing is almost the idea of elevation and, and, and going beyond and, and, and stretching your limits. Sure. And it's a very signature point of view. So there are multiple ways of creating uh, signature elements. I think the key question people need to ask them is, you know, you can have a successful business by being vanilla. There's a lot of people that do it, but you're not going to ever get to an iconic level. If you want to get to the iconic level, which I actually argue is the highest level of branding. I mean, there is, you know, visual branding, there's sensorial branding, there's emotional and uh, branding. But I think the highest form is actually when you reach iconic status because you go beyond what you see or what you think or what you uh, feel. It now comes it becomes part of your belief system. It's sure. part of what you 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 know. It, it, there's self identity involved in terms of. Uh, it becoming iconic and the fact that you're using it, it actually represents a part of what you, who you are, what you believe. So uh, if you want to reach that status, you need something about you that makes you stand out. And so the question that people need to ask themselves is, what is your signature element? And it even applies on personal branding. If you want to be distinctive or, or, or different on a personal level, do you have something that's signature about you individually? So um, it works kind of both ways. So th that's the power of noticing power is creating signature elements. Wow. So so would you say so as, as I'm listening to to you describe the different attributes um, that, that create iconic products and or experiences, would you say that a company like Nordstrom has an intangible, let's say, attribute which would be service? Absolutely. You nailed it. That's one of the examples we used is, is, is Nordstrom and their service model. I mean, they, now I would say over the last, I don't know, uh, 
15 years, um, I think 15 or 20 years ago, they're better known for it. But you know, when you go back for 15 or 20 years, that was a signature experience that became something they were known for. You heard all these stories about, oh, I bought a suit and um, you know, I needed it by 5 p.m. and the store salesperson actually showed up my office at 4:30 with the the suit, you know, and, sure. and, and or they met me at the corner where my house was, blah blah blah, you know. It's like so you hear all these great stories about service above and beyond, and that definitely became part of both their signature experience and their signature point of view. Sure, gotcha. Oh, perfect. So, so I mean, it's not just physical; it can be something that's uh, intangible, tangible and intangible, which which makes it even absolutely. more interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, now I'll, I'll, so we talked a little bit about noticing power, which is really important, being, being able to be distinctive and stand out, but just as important is the idea of staying power because iconic products, um, they're not flashing in the plans. They're, they're, they're things that are iconic because they've actually um, stood the test of time. And so one of the things about this idea of staying power is that you need to be relevant, not just today, not just in the past, but in the future. It's the idea of timeless relevance is what creates great staying power. And in order to do that, you need to appeal both to the heart and to the mind. You both need sort of a rational reason to be relevant, but you also need an emotional reason to be uh, to be relevant. And so when we talk about staying, uh, staying power, we talk about this idea of two dimensions, past and present, and we talk about um, um, uh, functional and emotional. And so think about it as a two by two kind of matrix uh, where the dimensions are sort of time and then the other dimension is um, broken up between functional and emotional. When you are building staying power, you need to think about, are you doing it both in the past and for the future? And are you doing it both for the heart and the mind? Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Is, is your, as you were describing this, I was thinking um, of, for example, Tag Heuer, right? It's very emotional because if you think of the watch itself, the image of it, it's performance driven. It's very much like a Nike product, right? It's all about performance. It's about success. If you think about, like, I think some of their old ad campaigns, I'm not sure what the most recent one is, but I remember one of the, one of the ad campaigns that sticks in my mind, uh, it's just a tagline, which is, success is a mind game and that was an emotional component to it but then as you look at the actual watch itself like their classic uh, uh, watch it, it essentially is just about durability it's about uh, being able to, to perform well under pressure which is the whole concept and you yeah yeah I mean that's a great example of somebody that's become that's stayed relevant because They've done all the things you've talked about. They protected the signature elements that have made them successful and have created trust and have built familiarity to the brand. To your point, you know, when you see a tag, it looks like a tag. There's certain elements, whether it be the logo, the the, the way it's crafted, the uh, the shape, all that, you know, has remained fairly consistent. Um, but at the same time, they've also thought about. That was the past. Okay, that was protecting the functional part of the past. They've also tried to kind of reimagine on an emotional level what um, you know how, how to infuse it without changing the, the the signature elements. How to infuse it with um, excitement and new design and energy. 
and and they played with it without violating the the, the signature elements. Um, so yeah, you, you nailed. It. I mean, I, I, if you think about the Nike Air, that's also a real prime example of somebody who's thought through this idea of past, present, and rational, emotional. So it's hard on the on a on a podcast, but I'm going to walk you through those four quadrants. So if you think about um, creating relevance from the past on a rational level, all that really means is protect the signature elements that people know about your brand and trust about your brand. So the goal there is just protect your signature elements so you create familiarity. You, you, the last thing you want to do is ever take away some of those signature elements because then it doesn't seem familiar anymore and it doesn't feel iconic, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the next thing you want to do is, this is all about the past still, but on an emotional level, you want to leverage your history and your story, but you want to evolve it. You want to uh, think of it as a um, character in a movie. The character stays the same, but the situation that the person goes through or the character goes through changes. And just like your, uh, you know, just like we all do, you know, we grow older, we have new experiences, we have kids, we have families, you know, we graduate from college, all those things. The same thing is true for your brand. Your character stays the same, but what you experience as you grow up may change. And so you need to evolve that. Sure. That's the second quadrant. And if you go to the third quadrant, which is really about the present, it's all about the present, but on a rational level, it means enhancing the benefits. And Nike did that immensely because what they did is they started out with the Nike Air Pocket just in the heel, but then they moved and eventually it evolved over the, the uh, 20 or 30 years that it's been around to actually now encompass the entire sole of the shoe that is now actually an air pocket. It actually is the entire uh, footprint. And so they, they've continued in, to innovate and enhance the benefits. And lastly, you look at a 1987 air trainer versus today's air trainer, they've reimagined the design. It, it is looking, you know, they basically changed the design to fit the zeitgeist and the era that they're in without violating the signature elements, which was that air pocket and the swoosh. Hmm. That, that's, that's, that's a great, let's say, mental model to use for, for a product. I mean, the, the only, here's a question related to what you just described soon, and it's um, now on the organizational level, is it important to keep the consistency of the personnel, let's say working on a given product, like let's say the Nike Air, or is it more of a shared value system that should evolve within the organization that will allow different people to transition into the brand in order to make, uh, let's say, not brand necessarily, but the, the, the product within the brand is probably a better way to put it, uh, continuously evolve in its own authentic way, as you're describing. So, you know, you're always in trouble if a brand is contingent on sort of one person's vision and one person's experience. And a lot of what I call um, brands are, are, are designed that way. But when their founders either leave or they pass away, um, there's a big gap. And so you kind of want to protect against that. So when we looked at some of the best brands in the world that manage iconicity, they did it through an ecosystem. And so the, the way they did it, they actually had capabilities and best practices that allowed infusion of new people that could bring in new energy, 
but also could be trained and immersed into the culture of the franchise while still maintaining either structures or personnel whose distinct responsibility was actually to protect the brand. So let me give you a couple examples. On the protect side, one of the key things that all these businesses did is they articulated very clearly what was their iconic brand language. Specifically, what did they have to protect, signature elements, and conversely, what were they allowed to play with? What was the blank canvas on the product that they could actually you know, toy around with and go crazy with. And, and so it was kind of like, you know, a lot of these branding documents are all about what you can't touch and then what the size has to be. And they're all these, you know, things. but a great iconic brand language document also has uh, on the flip side, what you should go crazy with, what you should have fun with, wh where you should experiment, you know, wh where you should add in new energy and bring in new, new, new ideas. So a great, Iconic franchise is going to have a well-articulated iconic brand language mm -hmm. that lives beyond any of the people that are part of the brand. Now, now, the other thing that they do is they have a vault. Like Nike has this great vault where they put the, hist the history of that product franchise in the vault so new people and, and old people who want inspiration or anybody who's working on the brand can go back and look at what was it look what did it look like 20 and 30 years ago and use that as a way of getting inspiration as a way of grounding them in the brand but also as a way of potentially doing a retro refit of a old style in sort of a new way and so um, they have vaults sure wow. and then they actually have personnel that are actually managing the vaults and these are historians of the brand um, who are both historians and curators, but also uh, responsible for, for integrating and articulating the newness that's coming into the brand. Uh, and so this idea of protecting the past is actually um, a set of best practices and capabilities and structures that are intentful by these businesses. They also bring in new designers. They also bring in collaborators from different, uh, from, from different industries sure. to help them they share their iconic brand language with them and they say, look, don't violate this, but play with this. How would you imagine our product? It's kind of like when Vans goes out and works with uh, the Disney team and says, hey, look, our classic slip-on shoe, these are the things that we can't change, but we can change everything else. How would you How would you change it? Or they went to the Simpsons, did the same thing, or Hello Kitty, sure. and they, they asked them to help them reimagine the product based on uh, you know, their own inspiration. So this idea that uh, you protect your franchise um, and still keep it fresh, it's that managing that tension, it's it's actually a true ecosystem that's required to do that. So, so it sounds like soon that you have to really, so, so it's not only that the products within a brand or the brand itself uh, has this element of iconicity, but alongside what you need is a well-defined process that allows for the continual evolution of this brand. It's kind of like as you, you were describing the process, it almost sounded to me a little bit like what consulting companies do, right? In the sense that uh, usually uh, you'll have people um, from straight from college go into a consulting company, but then the idea isn't necessarily to keep them in perpetuity, right? It, it's a it's a well-defined process where you're in, uh, but 
it doesn't matter what consultant it is that is representing that particular consulting company, uh, she or he will always, let's say, embody the values of that consulting company and follow the processes um, all the time so that, that it's continually, let's say, rejuvenated, for, for lack of a better term. That's a great analogy, Jose. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think building on what you're saying, it's this idea that to manage an iconic franchise, it's not just the product design department or the marketing department's responsibility. It is actually every functional, uh, every functional area actually is involved. To your point, the HR system is set up so that you know you can bring in new people, you can mentor them, you can get them trained, you can and then also give them space to grow, but also uh, space to grow elsewhere outside of the franchise, and and that requires HR's involvement, you know, and likewise, like I said earlier, these great iconic franchises have well-articulated business plans that have investment and innovation platforms that go out five to seven years. And that requires finances involvement. It requires the innovation team's involvement. And it requires senior leadership to buy into this, this, this sort of the, the, the future vision of what the uh, franchise might look like without violating what made it successful in the past. And so um, it, it, it's multifaceted in terms of all the people are required to truly manage an iconic franchise well. I think one of the biggest challenges that a lot of these businesses face, and a lot of reasons why when I ask them all these questions, they didn't have a good answer for me, is because right now the way it's set up, most businesses treat their iconic franchises as cash cows. Mm. And there's sort of this underlying belief or sentiment that the cash cow isn't very sexy. You know, it's been around a long time. Sure. You know, you milk it and then guess what? You take all that milk and you feed all these innovation stars, all this shiny, bright new stuff that's out sure. there. And so it's actually hard to get people in the company to want to work on, for example, when I was at Clorox, you know, it, it wasn't as sexy to work on the Clorox bleach as it was on all the new stuff that was out there, right? Right. But that's where all the money was being made. So part of it is how do you design management incentives and the right culture that it's actually revered and celebrated to be able to work on an iconic franchise or a heritage brand. And so that's something that has to be consciously done in order to make sure that you get people wanting to actually participate and you get the best and brightest actually on your old stuff, not just your new stuff. Sure. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. So um, now I'll, I'll ask you one more question since we're almost out of time. But given that um, we have a lot of retailers uh, listening to the program, are there any last things that you might, last thoughts that you uh, might want to impart to them? Sure. I mean, I'm glad you asked that question because a lot of the discussion and a lot of the best practices are based on people managing iconic product franchises. But what we found is that those people that focus on creating signature experiences and signature moments, that if they can do that, they tend to be the stickiest and the most memorable and the most effective at driving brand love and increased purchase interest. So I think the, the, the key challenge for your uh, retail customers that are listening to this is do they have signature experiences and signature moments in their stores or 
online that make them stand apart, that make them notice that, you know, that people would actually talk about. And here's an example. Uh, Timberland in Japan um, learned that, hey, you know, the, the, the yellow boot was really becoming a big fashion item. But people actually wanted to personalize the yellow boots because they were very expensive in Japan. It's not like in the states is like maybe a hundred bucks in japan it's like three hundred dollars for a, you know a pair of boots wow. and what they did is they created these small little 300 square foot shops where you could get the yellow boot but they also had basically the equivalent of a shoe cobbler in there that could then take your shoe and customize it for you it could add designs on it can imprint and burn your name you know there's all these different ways to actually you know, you know change the lace out blah 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 so, so that it was personalized and customized for you and that was a signature experience that was something that people talked about and they had lines of people wanting to buy their own personalized boots that were both iconic because they knew like we talked about the iconic brand range what they couldn't touch but they also knew what they could play with in terms of making it personal and custom. Mm -hmm. And and so I think the challenge is, you know, what can your um, retailers do to create signature experiences? Um, I want to share one last example. It's of Amazon. You know, okay, sure. people think about Amazon, they probably think about availability and price. You know, that's why people go to them. I actually think Amazon, what they're really trying to own is the idea of instant gratification. You know, they started mm -hmm. out with one click and that was – most people didn't think that was going to be their signature experience. Well, I believe it is now becoming their signature experience. You know, they've gone from the idea of just one click sure. to now you can download any type of media, whether it be music, whether it be books, whether it be videos instantaneously. You can, you know, you've seen those dash buttons where yeah. you can basically put them on your washing sure. machine or in your refrigerator or wherever or your, 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 your potato couch and, and, and <laughs> order your beer when you need it. You know, sure. I mean, that's amazing. Now they have, uh, they're, they're launching their, their physical stores and they're going to have home grocery delivery same day. Amazon and obviously, Go. yeah, Amazon going. And obviously they have the, the echo or the Lexus or whatever that, you know, now you don't even need to go online. You can basically say, I want it. And, uh, it'll show up and all you have to do is voice it. And, and at the end of the day, what they're really trying to – the benefit the benefit they're trying to deliver is this idea of no patience required. Sure. <laughs> and, easy, and so easy this is – essentially. Exactly. So this is the idea of both having a signature experience but going back to this idea of staying power where they kept innovating that benefit. They, they were relentless. They created a whole innovation platform around one click, and it has manifested in so many different ways. And the last thing I'll say is it actually takes a bit of courage to innovate the old because part of what you need to be willing to do if you're innovating the old is cannibalize yourself. And if you're not willing to do that, it will always hamper your ability to actually innovate because you'll always second-guess yourself or you'll always um, – or fear will stop that innovation in the company. So you, you, if you're going to innovate the old, you have to be willing to cannibalize yourself because better you cannibalize yourself than somebody else. Sure. Well, here's a question on, on that soon. So is there a, some sort of a rule of thumb to follow if you're going to cannibalize yourself? I mean, is there, uh, is there a best practice to follow or, or is, perhaps is there a way to think about it? Uh, in order to mitigate any, let's say, potential risk? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a great question. I don't know if there's a, per, per se a rule of thumb in, in terms of when to do it or how, but I do 
know that people like the Nikes of the world and people that really manage and Apples and all this, they do look at product product lifecycle management and they do look at the idea of over time what is the relevancy of their product and they're willing to do a couple things. One is you know go to that next S curve, which means basically cannibalize themselves. They're also at times realizing that it has less to do with about uh, introducing something to cannibalize. It's just losing a bit of its relevance. They intentfully put things into the vault for seven oh, years okay. and then they'll bring them back out. And then all of a sudden it's a retro revival because, you know, a, a, a human style, especially around style and fashion, it, it can be a bit cyclical. And sure. so, and, and you know, it's just like ads. They, 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 there's a certain amount of wear, right? And the same thing is probably true for products. And so um, the last thing I'd say about this idea of being able, wanting to cannibalize yourself Make sure as much as possible you don't set up the idea of uh, siloed incentives where um, you – you know, you, if, if something is getting cannibalized, you need to make sure that people that are managing the original business mm -hmm. are, are, are as rewarded as much as the people that are bringing in the new substitutes. Sure. Yeah, because you're right because it, it, it's not always clear – it's not to your point. It, it may sound obvious, which it certainly isn't. But when you're in the sauce, if you will, if your incentives aren't aligned across your organization, it, it's a problem, right? That, that yeah. Then, as you were pointing out earlier in our conversation, really, it, it's HR has to be involved to manage the well-defined process across your whole portfolio of and products. I you're absolutely right. And, I, you know, I do think it's a struggle because when you look at most legacy, especially with retailers, everyone's sort of set up to, you know, incent by store level, right? And by even sometimes by category level inside the store. And you know the struggles of trying to incorporate the idea of omni-channel incentives versus channel-specific incentives, right? And, and, and not having any fear that, guess what? I'm encouraging more online sales. I need to make sure I get incentives. Or I'm encouraging sales at another store. To me, it should be agnostic, but we have so many legacies and, and, and that are basically set up where we have siloed incentives, and that makes that makes this type of work really hard. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Well, Sun, listen, thank you very much uh, for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us. And uh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, be be sure to uh, we'll put at the end of the show notes. Uh, links to Soon's bio, so if you want to get in touch with Soon or ask any questions, um, you could contact us and we'll be sure to forward them to Soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.